Well, we are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke, and this has been a joy. We are in chapter five. Actually, next week, as we begin our Advent series, we're gonna go backwards. If you recall, when we began the Gospel of Luke, we started in chapter three, and that's because chapters one and two deal with the birth narrative of Jesus Christ, and we've been saving the birth narrative for Advent. So in the next few weeks, we're going backwards in Luke to Luke chapters one and two, and we'll be looking at the birth of Jesus Christ as we get ready for Christmas. But today we're continuing through the sermon series in Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. And let me remind you where we've come. Jesus Christ has established his ministry. The writer Luke is a historian, which is very good for us to remember this. The the gospel of Luke is written by a man who did the eyewitness testimonies with those who were around at the time. And we're talking with those who met Jesus, spoke with Jesus, ate with Jesus. And he's compiled a history for us so that we can have certainty over our faith. Very important, especially for us 21st century Western rational thinking people who like to know the science behind things. This is a history of the life of Jesus. And if you recall... One of the first things Jesus did, he was baptized, tempted in the wilderness, and then he gave this profound sermon where he said, I've come to set the captives free. And for the last four or five weeks, what we've been watching is in the life of the ministry of Jesus, Jesus has been going out and setting the captives free. He's healed lepers. He's healed paralytics. He's been doing the type of work that Jesus said in his first sermon, this is what I've come to do. And today we come to a teaching of his. It's a very well-known teaching. It it might be brand new for some of you if you never heard this, but in the world of Christianity, this is some of the language is used in a lot of places throughout the church. And what I want to do today is I want to breathe fresh life into what could be for some an old familiar teaching. And for those of you who this is new, who this is the first time you're hearing this, I believe God wants to challenge us deeply on what it means to be a Christian. I wanna get that right. These parables that Jesus are about to teach cut right to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. So let's look at this dialogue that Jesus has with the disciples of the Pharisees. Luke chapter five, starting in verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. The word of the Lord. This story begins with a question that's posed by a handful of people. It begins in verse 33, and they said to him. Now, the question we should ask is, who is the they? Well, we gotta have a little context, try to figure out exactly who this is. And the best scholarship, the best idea is that this is a group of disciples of the Pharisees. It's a group of religious leaders who have been monitoring and watching Jesus and this this ministry of this young rabbi Jesus, and they've been scratching their head at him for the last number of weeks. And now a handful of the disciples of the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they ask him a very important question. And in this day, this question would have, it would have been a very obvious one to ask. And it's about fasting. They say to Jesus, they say, Jesus, we don't get your ministry. We know John the Baptist and his ministry. 
John the Baptist fasts all the time. We know the Pharisees and their ministry, and they fast all the time. But you, you and your disciples, you never fast. You're always eating and drinking. What's the, what, what, what is the difference between you and these two ministries? Now, this is important to understand. In those days, in the first century, the two largest religious groups on the scene in Israel, where all this was taking place, was John the Baptist, who was functionally a celebrity in Israel at the time, and the Pharisees. They were the two largest groups. Now, there were a handful of other big groups. There were the Essenes. There were a handful of other ones like that. But the two largest were the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist. And, and so you can understand where these disciples of the Pharisees are looking at the way that everyone else is doing religion and then looking at the differences in the way Jesus is doing it and saying, how does this match up? Help us explain this. Now, a bit more about these two different groups. Let's think about John the Baptist. Well, we know quite a bit from the Gospels, actually from Luke especially, we know quite a bit about John the Baptist. Who was he? The Old Testament actually tells us, one of the, some of the last words in the Old Testament, tell us that before the Messiah comes, there will come one who will pave the road for the Messiah. And we know that that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist's ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus. And so he came proclaiming, one who is greater than I is coming. And he was baptizing people. But he also was a particular kind of religious man. And he fasted very often. John the Baptist, his description is given to us. He wore itchy clothing, if you recall some of the descriptions of him. And he lived in the wilderness, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He is what we call an ascetic. An ascetic. This is a man who went without the physical comforts and pleasures of life, like soft clothing and warm beds and the things that we take for granted in our modern culture and that they would have taken for granted back then in their own way. He went without them in order to put himself in a position where he was highly dependent on God. Now, he fasted often. In Israel's, according to Israel's law, there was only one day a year where they were required to fast. I think it was the Day of Atonement. Once a year, everyone was required to fast. Other than that, you could fast as often as you wanted or didn't want to do. And so John the Baptist chose to fast regularly. That was something that was a part of his ministry. And it was pretty much in line with the other parts of his ministry. And so, very similar to many of you. Some of you fast regularly when you want to, or maybe you have a rhythm of fasting that you go without food for a season of time in order to hunger more for God. As your body hungers for food, you, you stay without food in order to realize your dependence on God. And, and that's kind of what John the Baptist was doing. Now, there was another group called the Pharisees. They had a whole different kind of spin on this. The Pharisees were known for desiring to follow every bit of the law of God. So if you go back into the Old Testament, and you look at all the laws, and those of you who ever kind of browse, at least even browse through the Old Testament, you know there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament. Well, the Pharisees were scrupulous law followers. They were meticulous about following every law. Now, is that a good thing? Yes. Every Christian should passionately desire to follow every law of God. Is it a good thing to desire to follow God's law? To know his law and study his law and desire to follow it? Yes! The heartbeat of what the Pharisees were doing was good. They want to follow everything about God's law. But the Pharisees made a mistake. And all through the Gospels, Jesus is constantly rebuking the Pharisees for this mistake. And what's the mistake they made? They went above God's law and added additional rules, rules that Jesus and the Word of God never said, the Bible never said, 
And then they were living by those laws and expecting other people to live by those laws as well. So one of them, for example, the Pharisees were well known for fasting twice a week. Every week, two days a week. In fact, later on in the Gospel of Luke, a Pharisee is going to come to Jesus and say, I fast twice a week. And he's pointing to his own self-righteousness. They were known. Now, where did that twice a week come from? Are they free to fast twice a week? Absolutely. And if that's a practice, some of you fast. I know at least one person in this room who fasts once a week. And I know a handful of you probably has some kind of rhythm where you fast regularly. That's a wonderful, beautiful thing to do. And if that's how they chose to practice their religion, great. But where they made the mistake is they began to demand those things from other people and began to rank how religious you were, how spiritual you were, based on whether or not you were living up to their man-made rules. That is known as Phariseeism. Over and over, Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees for this. The impulse to obey the law, good. Going above and beyond, that can even be good. But then holding other people to a standard that God's standard is not, holding other people to a standard that's different from a God's standard, now you've gotten yourself into trouble. And so you can imagine these disciples of the Pharisees coming to Jesus and looking at what their leaders are doing. They're Pharisees. And this is, the term for this is legalism, by the way. Legalism is where you have an overemphasis on the law of God and you're holding other people to these standards that aren't from the Bible. And, And they're looking at the Pharisees and looking at Jesus saying, Jesus, what gives? How come you're not doing what the Pharisees do? How come you're not doing what what John does? And Jesus looks to them and says, very interestingly, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now notice, Jesus does not deny their premise. He doesn't say, you're wrong. I'm actually fasting all the time. You don't know it. He He says, you're right. We're not fasting right now. Why? Because the bridegroom is with them. And what's the illustration here he's saying? He says, look, on the wedding day, do the bride and the groom fast on the wedding day? No, no. They're feasting on the wedding day. The day of the wedding, that's the day of of great joy. That's the day when everyone comes together and the family comes together and the groom is there and the bride is there and the community is there and you're celebrating because it's the day you've finally been waiting for. You're getting married. You've planned for this for a long time and here it is. Jesus says, the people of God have been waiting for this day for centuries for the great groom to appear, and he's here, and he's standing before you. Jesus is the great groom. This is actually language. If you're unfamiliar with the idea of a wedding being symbolic of the gospel, this is very important New Testament language that's used regularly. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, it reads this. Husbands, here's your duty. Love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. Pause. Word to the husbands. How is your love of your wife? Are you treating your wife the way that Jesus treats his church? That's the standard. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he describes the way Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus, why aren't you fasting? Because the groom is here. And if you knew what I've come to do, says Jesus, you wouldn't be fasting. You'd be celebrating. 
What's he come to do? This language, every, every word in those verses from Ephesians 5 are worthy of reflecting on. Jesus, the great groom, has married himself to his church. That's interesting language, but it's the language of the Bible. He's entered into a covenant with every follower of Christ, and he promises to present a Christian, a person who's given their faith to Jesus Christ. He promises to present that person to the Father pure and spotless. He promises to come into your life, and whatever your problems in your life or whatever sin you've brought into this world, whatever brokenness, whatever scars you have, whatever's hanging over your soul, Jesus, the great groom, says, I'm the groom who will come into your life and I'll hold you, I'll care for you, I'll lead you, and I'll prepare you for eternity in heaven with the Father. See, what Jesus is doing in this moment, he's saying, don't miss it, Pharisees. You're so stuck on following every little law perfectly that you're missing what's in front of you. The Messiah is right in front of you. Christian, isn't it possible to go through all the motions of church, all the motions of religion, all the the things that you're told you're supposed to do, which can be good things, do them. Isn't it possible to go through everything that you've been told you're supposed to do in Christianity and miss the Messiah and miss Jesus in the midst of it and the joy of the wedding day and the joy of the gospel and the joy of knowing that every one of your sins was placed on the cross by Jesus when he shed his blood for you. He loves you that much. There's no part of your life that the Messiah was on the cross thinking, I, I don't, I'm not dying for that part of their life. There's not one part. There's not one hidden shadow of your life that the Messiah doesn't know more intimately than you do. And he went to the cross to cover all of it. The groom has come. He's entered into that covenant with you. And then Jesus does something remarkable. He illustrates this point with two parables. Two parables. Both of them are unique. And both of them work together. Now, I'm going to provide for you an interpretation of what Jesus does here that my guess is radically different from almost any other sermon you've ever heard on this topic. What are the two parables he gives? The first one is about a patch on clothing, something we're all familiar with. Imagine I rip my jacket shoulder, right? I get a big hole in my shoulder, common thing I do because I'm always on my desk on my shoulder. Some of you guys do the same thing, right? And I get a big hole here. The first thing Jesus says, he says, look, If you go take a patch, if I go to the store and I buy a five by five foot, you know, sheet of cloth that tries to match this as best as I can, I'm not going to get it right on. And then I cut a little patch out of it and I try to sew that on here. Well, my wife would try to sew it. I would, (laughs) she's the sewer, not me and our family. But if she put that on here, two things would happen. You'd ruin the new sheet you got because you just put a hole in it and it wouldn't match because it's not the exact same. So you can't take a new patch and put it on an old jacket and think that both are going to work, the new and the old. Now, what does this have to do with fasting? Hmm. And then he uses a second parable. Then he talks about new wine and old wine. In those days, wine, you know, they, they, they didn't have the same kind of technology we have. And so the way they carried wine was in leather pouches. It was a leather wineskin. It was the hide of an animal that they'd sew together. And when you pour new wine into it, new wine creates gas. It needs room to expand. And a new wineskin would stretch. You put new wine in new wineskin, and the wineskin stretches. Now, once the leather's already stretched, it can't stretch anymore. So if you take that old wineskin, and you pour new wine into it and close it up, What's going to happen is the wine starts to emit its gas. It's going to burst. So you can't put new wine into an old wineskin. Otherwise, the wine gets spilled and the the wineskin bursts. 
Now, what does this have to do with fasting? There are two interpretations to these parables, and both are radically different. They're, they're, they're functionally the exact opposite interpretation from each other. Most of you have heard one, and I'm going to show you why I think that's wrong, and then I'm going to give you the other one, okay? <laughs> the first interpretation is this. Jesus is using these two illustrations to say, I've come to do something fundamentally new. He's what's new. And he's looking at the Pharisees and he's looking at them asking about fasting and all the rules they're doing. And he's saying, that's what's old. He's saying, I've come to do something new. And it's a whole new season. It's new wineskins. Look, I've shown up and the groom is here and now, and now we're gonna do things differently. Follow what I'm teaching you to do because this is new and it's better and it's superior. Now, that kind of makes a lot of sense. If you look at verse 38, he says, new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. It almost feels like what he's saying is, I'm doing something new and we're gonna need whole new categories, new wineskins for this to make sense. Well, is that true? Well, in a sense, we might be able to say that's true, certainly. Jesus did do something new. The Old Testament promises that when the Savior came, he would usher in a new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And when Jesus gave his last supper, he poured the wine. He says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He went back to Jeremiah 31, verse 31, and he said, I'm fulfilling the promise of the new covenant. And certainly we live in a new covenant. The covenant of grace in Jesus Christ and all of our sins forgiven, is that new? And does that interpretation make sense? I think it does. And if that's the interpretation you hold to, and if you listen to almost any other sermon that's out there right now on YouTube, you're gonna hear that interpretation. That's a fine one to walk away with. I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to say. Let me give you four reasons why. Number one, that breaks the entire thrust of the Gospel of Luke and the way that Luke is presenting Jesus. Luke does not present Jesus as a revolutionary. He presents him as a reformer, going back to the old ways. That is why Jesus constantly is being shown in the Gospel of Luke as rooted in Old Testament prophecies. He's going back to the prophet Isaiah. He's going back to the prophet Zechariah. And he's saying, I'm what's old, not what's new. I'm what's old is what Jesus is doing, what Luke is trying to present Jesus as. Secondly, verse 39 is a bit problematic. If these are parables, and the point of a parable, by the way, all the parables of Jesus, they're like riddles or jokes. And typically with a joke, the last line is the punchline. The last line is the gotcha. Well, what's the last line? No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Well, that doesn't make sense with that interpretation. If the point of these parables is to say, you Pharisees, you're the old wine, and me, I'm the new wine. And then I finish the, I finish the riddle by saying, everyone knows the old wine's really good. That doesn't really make sense, does it? Okay. Third is the initial question. And the way that Jesus, throughout the Gospels, always speaks to the Pharisees. The initial question this almost seems, if you read it this way, the way that, I'm, that this interpretation is, it almost seems that he's validating the ministry of the Pharisees and saying, look, what you're doing is good, but I'm coming to do something new. Your view on fasting is good, but I'm doing something even different. That's not how Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. He's always rebuking them for their legalism. 
He's saying what you're doing is wrong. And lastly, very importantly, from the book of Job of all places, the language of new wine and, and wineskins bursting is not brand new to Jesus. Job in the Old Testament said this. Job in the Old Testament, it was the fourth friend of Job's. If you know the story of Job, Job suffered tremendously and his three friends tried to counsel him, but they were terrible friends and they kept telling him all the things he was doing wrong. And in chapter 32, the fourth friend comes up and the fourth friend has been silent for 30 chapters while his friends have kind of been railing on Job. And then Elihu, the fourth friend comes up and he's describing how pressure he's felt in his life from having to sit and listen to these four friends and be silent. And he says in verse 19, Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. And what's the image here? The image here is that he is the wineskin, and all the pressure coming in on him is just making him feel like he's about to burst. He can't keep it in. Now, that doesn't sound like the way that first interpretation that you will oftentimes hear is speaking about the new wineskins. Now, before you, you think I'm way out in left field, let me quote John Calvin for you. John Calvin takes my interpretation. He says this, those who think that he compares in this interpretation, those who think that Jesus is comparing worn out garments and decayed bottles to the Pharisees and new wine and fresh cloth to the doctrine of the gospel have no probability on their side. <laughs> and then he goes on to tell the interpretation that I'm gonna share with you. Now, what's the interpretation I believe of these parables? Here it is, ready? It's the exact opposite. I believe that Jesus is the old wineskin. It's the old ways. And the Pharisees are the new wine and the new wineskin. And he's saying, here's what you've done with the old Pharisees. You've tried to patch it up by adding a patch that doesn't belong. You're requiring us to fast two days a week? Where in the world did you get that idea from? It didn't come from the Bible. It didn't come from the ancient ways, the ways that I walk in, says Jesus. And here's what you're doing to the precious wineskins. Who are the wineskins? It's the faithful followers of God who are trying to live out God's word. You're crushing them. You're gonna make them burst. And then verse 38, new wineskins belong in, new wine belongs in new wineskins. That's a critique of the Pharisees. Pharisees, you wanna make a new religion and new rules? Go put it in a new wineskin. But don't pretend it's the way of God. It's something totally new. Call it what it is. It's a new religion. Now verse 39 makes sense, doesn't it? And no one after drinking the old, the old ways of God, the ways that Jesus walks in, the, the way that he's reforming back to the ancient ways. I'm telling you, follow the word of God. No one after drinking the old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. See, Jesus is walking in the ancient ways. He's reforming us back to the old ways of God. And he's saying, you new Pharisees who are trying to add rules and make this all about following different rules and you gotta do this and you gotta do this, you're out of your mind. Telling people where they can and can't go, that wasn't in the Bible. Telling people what they can and can't do on the Sabbath, you know, the rules that they were making, that wasn't in there. Who they can and can't talk to, what houses they can and can't go into, none of that was there. Yet they had added all this in and they are what's new and Jesus is critiquing them. So who's the wineskin? See, this is where this gets so precious. The wineskins are the disciples of Jesus. This is amazing. The wineskins are the disciples of Jesus who just feel and, and, and are sensing all this pressure from their religious community around them. You just gotta do this and this. And it's like, I can never live up. I gotta fast twice a week. 
Imagine being a manual, uh, you know, a guy who does manual labor in the first century in the fields, being told that to be truly spiritual, you gotta fast twice a week. Can you imagine what that would feel like? How do you live up? It's too pressing. Do you know how much people feel like that in the church today? They just, they're exhausted. What are they exhausted from? It's not from the ways of Jesus. It's not, you get them the real Jesus, the life that is truly life of following what he told us to do and living the way he told us to live, that gives life. You throw a whole bunch of church rules and, and church stuff on them and, and church baggage and you gotta do it this way and you gotta talk that way and you gotta walk this way and you can't go over that. Man, people just feel like they're gonna be crushed. And they do. And it's legalism. What is this passage about? It's about legalism in the church. Now, let's spend some time working through legalism. Joel Green, who's a wonderful, he wrote probably what's considered one of the best commentaries in the modern age on the Gospel of Luke. He writes this, in effect then, Jesus interprets his behaviors, which are questionable and innovative to some onlookers, as manifestations of God's ancient purposes. In other words, Jesus is what is old, coming to fruition. While the concerns of the Pharisees are rejected, not only as innovative and new, but also as quite inconsistent with God's program. You see? Now, this teaches us two things. First of all, Jesus is rooted in the ancient. One of the common questions I get, and, and Christian, New Testament Christians are very confused about this. They say, we don't get it. We understand how a person is forgiven in the New Testament. We place our faith in Jesus, and his blood on the cross forgives us for all of our sin. But how was somebody saved in the Old Testament? Well, they were saved the exact same way you're saved. By grace, through faith, in the Savior. How were they saved in the Old Testament? by grace, through faith, in the Savior that was to come. They went through all of their religion, all of the laws that they followed in the Old Testament, always knowing this pointed to the fact that one day God would send somebody to do away with our sin and separation from him once and for all. And they were constantly waiting for that day to come, by grace, through faith. Now, how are you saved in the New Testament? By grace, through faith. Is it by perfectly following a set of rules and laws? No, you could never do that. It's by placing your faith in Jesus Christ who perfectly followed every law on your behalf. You see this? Jesus is rooted in the ancient. That's why he says in Matthew chapter five, verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's not doing away with them. He's fulfilling it perfectly. So he's rooted in the ancient. Now let's focus here on legalism because this is what I think we need more, the most from today. I wanna give you four practical considerations to think about this idea of legalism. And I don't wanna make this so practical for us. I want you to walk away from here thinking, okay, I see how this works itself out in my life, how I can get this gospel thing wrong. Four practical ways. First, let's start with a definition. Paul Helm says this about legalism. Legalism is an attitude of mind which gives excessive respect to the law and which seeks to enforce conduct of a similar kind in others. So you've all been around Christians like this or churches like this, that it's, the focus is on what you do and what you don't do and how you do it. It's, it's an excessive focus on the law and then holding other people accountable to these extra rules. Now, how can we think about this? Number one, if we're gonna think about legalism, we have to have a proper understanding of the relationship of law and gospel. Law and gospel. This is so critical and we do not speak about this enough. I hope you get good training in this church as a result of this. What's the role of the law and what's the role of the gospel? 
Do Christians just throw the law out entirely? I meet a lot of, a lot of Christians who just say, we don't, we don't talk about the law. In fact, I sometimes get in kind of like Twitter conversations with people, spats. Some of you might follow my Twitter account and see me getting these little Twitter conversations with people where they say there's no law, no law whatsoever. We're free in Christ. And I say to them, there's no law over your life whatsoever? There's no boundaries of what God wants you to do or not do? And they say, well, that would be legalism. No, 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 no. You gotta understand law and gospel. The law is in place. What law? The 10 commandments. And every bit of depth of those 10 commandments stand over your life. You are accountable to those laws. But here's what happens. As you, as you live your life and you study the law of God and you see your own life in relationship to the law, you realize that you can never live up to the law perfectly. I saw this in my own life this week. 10th commandment, do not covet. What was in my mind this week? I was thinking of a particular ministry and I was dwelling on it. I was thinking of another person's ministry and the way that they do ministry and I was thinking that would be nice to be able to do ministry that way. And I was just, just desiring something that God had not given me. And you know what that was? 10th commandment. I was breaking it. Now what, that's the law. So here's what we do. We constantly put ourselves under the law and we let the law be heavy on our life. We let it push on us until we, we realize we have fallen short of God's standard. All 10 commandments, every single one, we're constantly underneath it. But then we understand the gospel. We understand the law points us to our need of a savior and then we don't stand under the law. We stand under the goodness of the gospel that Jesus went to the cross to forgive you of your sin. Fully, every single misdoing, every single misdeed is done away with. Now is the law gone? No. We're always underneath the moral law of God. Does it guide us for our life? All 10 commandments and every nuance of them, yes, sit under those regularly. But as you sit under them, don't become a legalist who only stays there. Law, 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 law. No, law, gospel. Law, gospel. Always rebounding up to the goodness of Jesus on the cross for you. So you gotta have this relationship. Those who never take time to understand the role of the law in a believer's life will only ever have a very shallow understanding of the goodness of the gospel. If you never let the weight of the commandments fall over you, and what Jesus said when he said, if you have anger towards a brother, then you're already liable of murder. And you don't let that fall heavy on you then you never experience that rebound to the gospel of how much Christ has forgiven you of. We've got to have a proper understanding of law and gospel. And the legalists, the Pharisees, confuse this. Number two, we must be able to separate godly wisdom from legalism. We must be able to separate godly wisdom from legalism. Let me give you a really quick anecdotal idea here. Let's say there's somebody in the church who has a gambling problem got a gambling problem, they come to me. And, and we as a church come around them and say, hey look, here's a good rule for you to follow. Don't go to the casinos, okay? Just basic rule, don't go to the casinos. Now, when does that become legalism? If we, if we come to you and, you say, and we say, no Christian can ever step foot in a casino, in, under any circumstances, that actually might not be a bad rule. <laughs> but, but to be honest with you, if, if we came to you and you said, no Christian can ever, that's above and beyond the word of God. There might be a number of reasons why someone would step foot in there, okay? But to the guy who's got a gambling addiction, that actually might be really good wisdom. It's not just legalism. I see this play itself out in all kinds of ways. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, young, 
uh, in Chicago, there's a handful of Christian colleges. Moody, Trinity, North Park, up on the north side, Wheaton. And a lot of freshman students will get to their college campus and they'll realize that their college campus has these rules in place for how young Christian men and women ought to behave. There's curfews, what time you've got to be in the dorms. And one common thing I hear from Moody students when I'm talking with them is, oh, Moody is so legalistic with these rules and these laws. I don't know if that's legalism. That's just wisdom. Now, could it be legalism? Absolutely. If, if Moody's over there saying, look, this is what true righteousness looks like, and we're, we're judging you and your walk with Jesus based on whether you're, that would be legalism. And certainly Christian colleges have fallen into that in the past. That, that can happen. But maybe it's just a group of elders who have watched some college students make the same mistakes a thousand times over and have put a couple good rules in place to guard them. See, don't confuse legalism. Let me give you another example. Billy Graham, the famous Billy Graham rule. Some of you might have heard of this. Billy Graham was a, a famous evangelist that, that spoke throughout the entire world. Huge ministry. Millions. I, I, maybe that's, I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think millions of people might have come to faith in Jesus through the ministry of Billy Graham. He had a famous Billy Graham rule. Very controversial today. I have no idea why. What was the Billy Graham rule? To protect his ministry, to guard him from temptation, and to guard the ministry from false accusations, he would not be alone one-on-one -on -one with a woman in a closed-door room. He wouldn't be in an elevator, he wouldn't be in a car, and he wouldn't be in a meeting one-on-one -on -one with the door closed. Now, people today look at that and they say, ah, oh, Billy Graham, guess who the one huge evangelist who never had an accusation against him was? Billy Graham. Now, is that the law? It, can I come to you and can I say, every man, you need the exact same policy, and if you don't have this policy, then you are not righteous. You're not following God properly. No, that would be legalism. But may it be very wise? You better believe it. It might be very wise. Don't confuse wisdom and legalism. How, this one's very similar. Don't confuse discipline, godly discipline for legalism. I hear this very often as well. I'll talk to somebody, I'll speak speaking to a young man or young woman, I'll say, hey, talk to me about your walk with Jesus. Do you have a regular, a regular rhythm in your life, a daily, in fact, time of studying the Bible, reading the Bible? And they'll say, you know, pastor, I, I don't like to be legalistic about it. <laughs> no, that's not legalism. That's being disciplined with your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Spend five minutes in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, and you'll see it's the fool who has no discipline in their life. Foolish people have no discipline. They don't wake up on time. They don't study God's word. They, they, they don't do the things they're supposed to do. They don't go to work. Like, that's the fool. Who is the person who is not the fool? Who's the person who's the wise person? It's the one who's got good godly discipline in their life. So what are the disciplines that are good? Oh, there's so many of them. Being a part of a good godly community, taking time to study the Bible every day. Why? Because it's God's word, and I want to know what it says, and I want, to, I want it to breathe life into me incorporating morning prayer into your life. One thing I strive for, and I don't do this as well as, I, I try to get this every day, but I don't. I, I fall short on this regularly. But I want to do morning, noon, and night prayer. 
morning, noon, and night, even if it's just a minute at, at noon, I just want to at least pause in the middle of my day to stop and pray, right? Is that a good discipline? You better believe having rhythms of prayer, journaling, giving financially towards the church, towards Christian ministries, the discipline of waking up before the sun rises to be alone with God. Are all these good and wonderful things? Yes. This isn't legalism. But notice this. Notice how quickly it can slip into legalism. This is where I want to pause for just a second. Sometimes the most disciplined among us are the most legalistic in the church because it's so easy to do. Why? Tell me how I'm supposed to follow. What am I supposed to do to be a good Christian? Just give me the list, pastor. What do I need to do? Well, all right, baseline. You want to know baseline, the stuff you're supposed to do? Look, come to church on Sunday, be in a small group, study your Bible, you know, if, give to the church, manage your money well, uh, what else are we supposed to do? Be, have some Christian friends, memorize scripture, check, 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 check. And then all of a sudden, you can begin to feel like, good, I'm a Christian. Why? Because I did all the stuff pastor said I'm supposed to do. I'm disciplined. No, you're just a disciplined person. See, what, what's the passage about? Let me go back to the beginning. How did Jesus initially answer the legalists and the Pharisees. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The joy of the Lord. The joy of the presence of Christ in your life. Don't miss the purpose of it all. Don't come to church every week of your life and miss the reality that Jesus has risen from the grave. Don't miss the, don't miss the point that he sent his Holy Spirit to lead you into all righteousness and be with you till the day he takes you home, that he will let nothing come upon you, that he will not be there for you. Don't just let Christianity become a set of rules. And so what's the fourth thing here? What's the fourth thing? We must determine to not judge a person or ourselves simply by the externals. See, this is where legalism comes to play. It is so easy to judge other people simply by what we see on the outside. And I, I have a suspicion that we're gonna get to heaven and we're gonna look at the table, the feast, the wedding feast that we're gonna participate in as Christians. And we're gonna see some people who are sitting real close to Jesus who in this life, we did not guess that they had that depth of faith because our eyes were wrong. We were only looking at the externals. We saw them at small group every, we, did, or, or we were looking and then, sorry, and then we see other people that aren't even at the table. And we're saying, well, interesting. That person's all the way over there by Jesus. And so-and-so, he was a deacon in the church. You, he's not here. Why? Why? Legalism can very easily deceive a person to make them think that they're actually a Christian. When in fact, they just do the things that Christians do and they've never been changed by Jesus. Legalists do not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus is not playing in this passage. Verse 38 is a critique of the Pharisees. And he's saying, call it what it is, but it's not Christianity. 1 Samuel verse 16 Chapter 16, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on the appearance of the height of his stature because I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on 
the heart. Now I need to turn it on us individually. Have you, is your version of following Jesus following all the things that are the externals of the Christian faith, but no joy in the, in the groom of Christ? No, no celebration of what it means that you have the Holy Spirit and it can never be taken from you? No rejoicing in your trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and you want steadfastness to have its full effect because that, that forms something deep in you. Instead, every time a trial comes on you, you just moan and lament and it, it's woe is me, not praise Christ that I have him with me. See, legalism is easy. This is why every religion in the world is legalistic. Every religion except for Christianity. Legalists are actually more like Muslims than they are than Christians. Because what's, what's Muslim? What do Islam do? They, 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 what's the, what are the five things I got to do to be made right with God? I got to make this trip. I got to say this many prayers. I got to give this much money. And then I got to do this. And if I do those five things, it doesn't matter what else is going on, but God's pleased with me. And then I earn more or less merit based on what I do. Islam 101. That's not the scriptures. The groom has come. Do we not follow the law now? Do not love God's law? No, we cherish God's law. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in all of his ways. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my heart might treasure your statutes. We're to love God's law, but it always points us to the gospel that's freed us from all of the law because we can never live up. See, the legalist gets this confused. Have you let legalism come into your Christianity in any way rooted out right now? Don't, don't let your Christianity be about coming to church, doing all the things you're supposed to do, and not on your knees before a holy God just saying, oh, it's so much better than I could ever imagine. God, you've forgiven all of my debt. You've promised to be with me forever. Do you ever have those moments in your life, Christian? Do you ever just have moments where you're overwhelmed by the goodness of Christ? If not, if not, you might have some legalism slipping into your Christianity. And you might be deceiving me and everyone else. But you don't deceive the big guy. Jesus is not doing something brand new. He's not a revolutionary. He's a reformer. He's going back to the old ways. And the old ways are that God's after the heart. He wants us to follow him from the heart because his ways are good. They'll bring life. They'll bring healing. They will bring newness in your life as you walk in the ancient paths. Amen? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you right now and we ask that what was shared from this pulpit right now would stick in our hearts in a way that causes change. God, I pray for those in this room that are experiencing any level of conviction, whether small or great, God, that you would let that conviction weigh like the law of God on their hearts heavily, that you'd push it deeper and deeper, revealing the weaknesses and the, the pronesses we have to legalism. And then, God, that you would let the gospel shine so brightly that you love them, that you've forgiven them on the cross, and that there's life to be had in Jesus Christ. God, have your way with this message right now. Work it into our hearts, I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.